mindfulness helps us pay attention to the moment when suffering and pain are rising in our system. What mindfulness really helps us do is to disentangle ourselves from the way we can get stuck in pain and become over-identified with it. Mindfulness allows us to pull back a bit and to have some space so that we can see clearly what's happening. And with mindfulness, we really use the body, the idea of sensation, to help ground ourselves in this present moment. At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home On Air. Really grateful for all the work At Home With Going Older is doing around this really important topic of how do we approach aging, not a topic that gets enough attention. Mindful self-compassion actually fits really neatly into this. Before I launch into the popular topic of suffering, I'd like to first make sure that the right people are in the room. And so I have a short poem I'm going to read to you by Jack Kornfield, who is a meditation teacher and psychologist and one of the co-founders of Spirit Rock in Marin. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, you're probably a dog. <laughs> so, I don't see any dogs, so I assume everyone is in this human gig with me. And we all are familiar with pain. We all know what this is. This is a universal human experience. And most of the time when we think about pain, we think about how to get rid of it. You know, it's this really basic human response. And you might've heard the expression that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And there's a really important truth in that little saying that I'd like to explore a little bit. So in order to talk about pain, I'd like to back up just a bit and talk about the physiology of pain. We know so much now because of neuroscience about how the brain works. And so we really have a lot more insight into this. As I mentioned, pain is this really common human experience, and the common reaction is to resist it. And this isn't because we've done something wrong. This is actually how we are wired. So the oldest part of our brain is our survival brain. And this survival brain is really meant to keep us alive. And so when the tigers were chasing us through the Serengeti, the survival brain was really, really important and it has been really important for our species and for still being here. But what happens when the brain registers a threat, 
the amygdala, which is, again, in one of the older parts of our brain, releases adrenaline and cortisol. These are threat hormones. When this happens, all or most of the body's resources are directed towards this effort to survive, and we engage in what's commonly referred to as fight, flight, or freeze. And so, thank God we have this capacity, really important, and it still is, even though we don't have many tigers, there are other situations in life where it is really important to, to respond to pain with this survival brain. But there are two problems with this response of the survivor brain. One is with repeated threats, it can get stuck on on. And so we can become habituated to threat. And so part of this response is sometimes called the limbic brain. And sometimes people have referred to our politics in this country as limbic politics. This is where we get stuck on this kind of heightened state of arousal, where we're constantly looking for a problem, we're looking for danger. The second problem with our survival brain is that the brain doesn't differentiate between a tiger chasing us through the jungle when our physical safety is at stake versus social and emotional pain. The same physiology is activated. So when we experience disruptions in relationships, when we experience other kinds of pain that is social, emotional, the same amygdala can get activated. The same fight, flight, freeze response can get activated. And so the survival brain is really important for staying alive, but it's not so great around thriving and accessing the parts of our brain that are more in the prefrontal cortex that include things like compassion, empathy, discernment, joy, gratitude, these kind of variables that really make life meaningful. We just don't have access to them when the brain is in the survivor system. So this is the problem of pain. The problem of pain is we can get stuck in this hardwired response that we have to pain. It sounds overwhelming. And many of us are in this situation right now. So David, let's dig deeper into this and explore from your experience and from this practice of mindful self-compassion. What is the way out of this being stuck? Yeah, that's the crux of the issue. So mindful self-compassion, as the name suggests, has two wings of the bird. One is mindfulness and the other of compassion. Mindfulness is this capacity that we have to pay attention to the present moment just as it is. And why this is an important resource in terms of getting out of being unstuck is when we are in pain and when we are in fight, flight, freeze, we are typically really over-identified with the pain. And we also tend to ruminate on it. So you probably are familiar of that hamster wheel. We all get stuck on and we go round and around and around. And this is the part where, you know, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We actually add an additional layer of pain that is self-inflicted by getting on this hamster wheel. Buddha said that there are two arrows of suffering. The first arrow is just life happens. And the second arrow is the one that we shoot ourselves with. This is where we are self-critical and get lost in the pain. So 
Mindfulness helps us pull out of that because when we bring attention to the present moment, it widens the aperture of our awareness. And so we are identified with the pain. A really easy way to think about this mindfulness principle is what happens when you take a deep breath. You know, a deep breath is a really simple mindfulness practice where you just feel your breath. And when you are in a moment of stress, how regulating that can be. Mindfulness helps us regulate our central nervous system and down regulates the threat response so that we then can choose a different response. Then the second part of the formula is the self-compassion. And, and this is the wise use of a different response. So I talked about the parts of our brain that are hardwired, the survival brain, but we have another capacity that is not as hardwired, but it is innate. And that is as mammals, we have a caregiving system. It's called the mammalian caregiving system. This really served us evolutionarily speaking, because for mammals, young have this long period of development and they have to be protected. So this caregiving system is a way of activating care and making sure that our young are cared for for the full period of development, but we don't lose that capacity. And when the caregiving system is activated, some very different hormones are released, different than the, the survival brain hormones of cortisol and adrenaline. When the caregiving system is activated, the feel-good hormone happen. So opiates, sometimes called the hugging hormones. So when we think about activating the caregiving system, it's helpful to think about how we respond to young. And so I'm going to ask everyone just for an experiment. When you think about when a parent or a guardian responds to a cute and beautiful little baby, and they're just filled with kindness and love, What's the sound that we make? Let's all make it together. Oh, That's it. And this is a universal kind of thing. You might have noticed it immediately brought smiles to people's faces. This is the evidence of this feel-good hormone. The second universal response is how do you respond to an infant who is struggling, who's crying? What's the sound we make when we want to respond to a child that's in some distress. Oh, there you go. There, that's the, you got it. When we get out of the survival brain with mindfulness, we have the capacity to bring online compassion. And the really good news is we can do this for ourselves. We don't have to wait for someone else to do it. We can actually offer it to ourselves. And this is incredibly good news and really helpful. So I should say that mindful self-compassion was developed by two psychologists, Christian Neff and Christopher Germer. One's a research psychologist and the other is a clinical psychologist. I'll talk a little bit more about them in a minute, but they are the ones who organized this idea of mindful self-compassion. David, I love this image of the Buddhist saying life happens and the other one is shoot ourselves. This is the two eras of suffering. And as you said, the amazing thing about mindful self-compassion is that we are our own resource. I don't know if the era really turns the other way, but in a way we just break off the tip of the era. So I'm curious because mindful self-compassion really emerged in the last 10 years. What was sort of your entry point into this? 
I spent my career working with at-risk and traumatized children and families in a really intense kind of clinical setting. And it was amazing work. I learned so much, but it really took a toll after 20 some years. And I really started to burn out. And the way the burnout showed up is in my body. I, I had a serious health crisis where my doctor really said, you either do something different or you're not going to be around. This really was the point where I realized that something different had to happen. And so I really began this exploration of what healing might look like. And in this way, I discovered mindful self-compassion. For caregivers in particular, I think mindful self-compassion would be a really important resource because while we talk a lot about self-care, there was nothing in my training program that talked about self-compassion. And the good news about self-compassion is you can offer it to yourself in the moment of pain or suffering. So rather than you know, having a difficult day and then coming home and taking a walk or listening to music or doing any other kind of self-care kind of things, in the actual moment when you are registering that, wow, this is really hard, this hurts, that's the moment when we can administer this balm, which is self-compassion. It's a skill that can be learned and practiced. Yes, and it's wonderful to be part of this practice. Can you tell us a little bit about Christian Neff and the other founders and what the concept is exactly of mindful right. compassion? Well, self-compassion has become a really hot topic in kind of research circles. In order for it to be researched, Christian Neff really had to define what exactly is mindful self-compassion? Like what are the elements so that we can research it empirically based on these elements. Mindful self-compassion has three components. The first is mindfulness itself. The, the idea around mindfulness is you have to know you are in pain in order to respond in a different kind of way. And the thing about most of our pain, most of our pain is below the surface. Most of the time, we're not even conscious that we are in distress. You know, when I was working with these really difficult situations, I would have a hard day, but I didn't know I was having a hard day in the moment. It was cumulative over years. And so mindfulness helps us pay attention to the moment when suffering and pain are rising in our system. Again, what mindfulness really helps us do is to disentangle ourselves from the way we can get stuck in pain and become over-identified with it. Mindfulness allows us to pull back a bit and to have some space so that we can see clearly what's happening. And with mindfulness, we really use the body, the idea of sensation to help ground ourselves in this present moment. The one thing about our thoughts, our thoughts are really useful and really helpful, but our thinking brain is most often engaged in the past and the future. We're either reviewing what's already happened or we're planning for what we're going to do. Neither one of those is in this moment. But my breath, that's just happening right now. You know, my heartbeat, this is happening right now in this moment. And so mindfulness helps us bring our attention to this present moment. So that's one of the components of mindful self-compassion. The second component is this idea of common humanity. 
when I read that poem by Jack Cornfield, you know, the really powerful takeaway is we don't do this human gig alone. We all struggle. We all experience pain. And one of the things that happens when we experience pain is we tend to become isolated. It feels personal. If you've experienced some struggle over your period of time, you probably are familiar with that way in which you just go further and further down the tunnel, deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. And it feels like this is just you that's suffering. And so one of the components of mindful self-compassion is the awareness and the understanding that we don't suffer alone, that this is part of the human gig. With that broadening of our perspective, we can again bring some more space to what feels really personal and really tight. Then the last component of mindful self-compassion is what we began exploring when I was asking you to make the vocalizations to activate the care system. And this third aspect is the idea of self-kindness. And this really is the idea that the really simple explanation of mindful self-compassion is treating ourselves as we would treat a beloved. So this idea that the ways we can love others and care for others, we can direct for ourselves. Those of you who have any church background might know the verse about do unto your neighbors as you would do to yourself. For most of us, our neighbors would be in trouble because if we treated our neighbor the way we treat ourselves, they might want a different neighbor. Really, the idea is to turn the goodwill, the kindness, the compassion that we can turn towards others and turn it towards ourselves. The other thing that frequently happens when we get stuck on pain is there is a lot of self-criticism and self-judgment. Typically, the way the mind kind of works with pain is the first is, this hurts. I don't like this. This shouldn't be. Why is this this way? Who is causing this? It must be me. What did I do wrong? And so many times that cycle of where pain eventually winds up back with us. And this is the second arrow. The second arrow where we feel like there's something defective in us, that this is why we are experiencing the pain. And so self-kindness is the way to meet that self-judgment and self-criticism with a different kind of voice. We access this caregiving system through words, but when Susie talked about maybe breaking off the sharp end of the arrow, the actual mindful self-compassion move would be this. So instead of responding with aggression towards ourselves for the pain, it's this kind of, oh, sweetie, Oh, I'm so sorry. This is so hard. And that simple move can really transform a moment and give us access to something that lives in the prefrontal cortex of our brain and can have more discernment, more wisdom, more ability to choose a response as opposed to react. So those are the three components of mindful self-compassion. And I'd like to lead us in a short little exercise, a little kind of guided meditation, if you will, using these three components of mindful self-compassion to give you just a little bit of a flavor of what it might feel like. Before we do this, I just want to say that 
this is completely optional. You know, don't feel like you have to do this. And at any point of the reflection, if it feels like it's too much or it doesn't feel like it's helpful, you are more than welcome to leave the meditation by thinking about something else or looking around the room. We're going to be doing this reflection by inviting into our awareness a situation that feels challenging. So just to know that we're going to be working with a situation in your life that feels difficult, but we're going to choose something in the mild to moderate range. Don't, don't pick the biggest pain of your life because we're, we're just trying to get a flavor of what this looks like. We're not doing therapy. We're just doing an experiment to see if we can access this resource of self-compassion and see what it feels like. So for those of you that want to participate, if you want to find a comfortable posture that you can sit in and that you can hold for the next maybe a little less than 10 minutes, making any adjustments, being kind to this body of yours, settling in, and then making a choice to either close your eyes, either partially or fully. And then I invite you to take a couple easy breaths. You know, we've been doing a lot of talking. And in this moment, I'm inviting you to come into your body, to come into this body just as it is, by noticing your breath. Where do you feel the breathing? Is it in your nostrils or the back of your throat? Maybe you feel some movement in your chest or your belly. Just noticing breathing. Feeling the sensation of breathing, of being alive, just like this. And I invite you to call to mind a situation that is challenging or something that is causing you a bit of a struggle. This could be something relationally with another person. It could be a situation with technology that is really irritating you. Something in your fairly recent past that feels like a struggle, feels like it's difficult, that you don't like it, that you wish it was different. So calling it to mind, maybe just taking in the details of the situation. What happened? Did anyone say anything? And when you have a sense of the situation, I invite you, if it feels okay, to notice where do you feel it in your body? So when you think about this situation, does it live somewhere in the body? Is there a tightness that happens in your chest or does your breathing change? Maybe your mind gets busy with thoughts. Maybe your brow gets wrinkled and tight or your jaw gets tight. Just noticing where it lives. All emotions have a physical component and maybe it's just a general sense of discomfort or disease. That, that's fine too. There's no right or wrong answer. And so if you notice where this pain or discomfort lives, I invite you in your own, in the quiet of your own mind to say, this hurts. Perhaps 
this is a moment of suffering. Maybe even something like, ouch, just naming it for what it is. This hurts. This is mindfulness. And it takes some courage just to name it and be with it. And then I invite you to add a second component to this experience. And this is the idea of common humanity, perhaps by saying to yourself, everyone suffers, I'm not alone. This is what it feels like when a human suffers in this way. Feeling into the way you are connected to the human family. And then lastly, I invite you to bring the third component, which is self-kindness. And for this, I invite you, if it feels okay, to place a hand, your own hand, somewhere on your body, perhaps your hand over your heart, or maybe the hand on your belly, perhaps taking a moment to experiment to see where the touch feels good, feels supportive. Maybe it's just holding your own good hand. With this contact, feeling the warmth, the soft pressure of your own good hand, letting this be a communication of care. Maybe even allowing your heart to warm or melt a bit. And perhaps there are even words that go with this supportive and soothing touch. Words you need to hear like, I care about you, or I'm here for you, or I got your back. Feeling this capacity we have to care, to care for ourselves. If you find that this is a struggle for you, you can't find the words or perhaps the touch does not seem to move you in any way. If your best friend or your beloved was sitting next to you and they knew you were struggling with this thing, what would they say to you? And can you offer those words to yourself? Taking just a moment to rest in this care. And then I invite you to release this reflection and this meditation and allow yourself to just sit for a moment in this experience perhaps still with your eyes closed or partially closed and feel what happened, noticing the places that there might've been a struggle or ways that it felt easeful. Again, there's no right or wrong way to do this. Just noticing what's true for you, how it feels to be you. And then releasing this reflection and allowing your body to move if that feels helpful, to open your eyes, maybe look around the room, wiggle your toes or wiggle your fingers. 
Give your body a little stretch and then coming back together. So thank you for that practice and for exploring that. I'd like to do this in two parts. One, it sometimes can be really helpful to take a moment after a reflection to just pause and give a chance for anyone who wishes to speak to what that experience was like. You know, anything that moved or anything that surprised you, anything that felt like a struggle or didn't work. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. So maybe just a couple of people, if there's anything to share about that practice, about what happened, even of those components of self-compassion. Yeah, Nancy. I was just going to say that the part that I found really special and powerful was literally putting my hands like you had done, because even though sometimes I can't get there in my mind, it just Mm. was like, oh, okay, I feel you. Yeah, beautiful. Again, if you think about a parent and how much time they spend just touching the baby. So touch is this really primal, really powerful resource that we have. I mean, I realized after the fact that frequently when I was doing therapy, I didn't even know I was doing it. I was frequently holding my own hand you know, in my lap because it was just this way of making contact with this one here. So yeah, thank you, Nancy, for sharing that. Did anyone find it difficult? or challenging. Okay. Marcy. Yeah, I found it a bit difficult because where I'm sitting is at my work computer, not relaxing. And Mm. my dog was jumping on my lap. So just environmental stuff. And did you notice how you responded to those things? I guess with some resistance Mm. or disappointment, you know, this is not going to be my moment. (laughs) The thing about mindful self-compassion is it's always right on time. So even in those moments when the dog is jumping, that's a moment where we also can do this because that is suffering. Like not being able to do self-compassion is suffering. So we say that we do self-compassion self-compassionately. So wherever you notice a struggle, you know, this can be a really powerful move. But thank you so much for sharing that common experience. Yeah, thanks. And Claire. My pain is physical pain. So when you came to the question, everyone else is suffering, something in my mind says, yeah, but they're probably not experiencing this back pain right now. Mm -hmm. I kind of went out of the self-compassion thing. I felt bad. I put my hand on my back and it was hard for me to expand Mm -hmm. that and say, I know back pain is universal in this Mm -hmm. culture. We're all sedentary, but it didn't help me very much. I got Mm -hmm. stuck there. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Claire. I think your example is so powerful that the way we get stuck in pain and the way pain narrows the aperture of, of our experience, it feels really close in. One of the things that I would say is in these three components of self-compassion, sometimes one of them is more powerful than the other. So sometimes we just don't have access to this common humanity. It just doesn't work, especially with something like physical pain. Like this is in my body, you know. So sometimes 
using one of the other elements like soothing touch can be helpful. One of the paradoxes of mindful self-compassion, which is a bit of a conundrum, is we practice mindful self-compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. So it is this idea that we're not trying to fix ourselves, but we're responding to our pain in this way that a loving parent would respond to a little child with the flu. As much as the parent wishes they could make the flu go away, they can't. And so they pull up a chair and they offer their presence. They offer their kindness, their compassion. So this is kind of slow going and it doesn't always happen immediately. This is a skill that can get stronger with practice. The Mindful Self-Compassion program is an eight-week curriculum. And so there is this kind of gradual learning that happens about how do we access this and where are the places we get stuck. So thank you so much, Claire, for sharing that and being so honest about that. It's really helpful. You're not the only one who suffers with physical pain. Barbara, we'll go to you. I found that the physical act of putting my hand on my heart was very, very comforting, even warming, kind of mm, like a mm. hot water bottle for the soul. The next step, I was stumped by what would I say to myself? I found I was speechless. With the prompt, what would a beloved or what would a dear friend say to you? Did that loosen anything up? I don't think it did. It's more of a work struggle. And I think they don't know what I'm doing. You know, they don't know. So I shut that out. You know, it could be further exploration that if you just imagine not you in the situation, but someone you care about in the situation, what advice you might give them would be another variation on the theme. You know, the thing about compassion, it doesn't matter how it gets in. It still counts. I mean, Kristen Neff, one of the founders of Mindful Self-Compassion, has said, I wonder if I should not have called it self-compassion because it's really just compassion, but including yourself in the circle. So compassion, wherever we access it, is a resource. Yeah. Thank you, Barbara. If anyone has any other questions about mindful self-compassion in general, you can throw those into. Val, I think you're next. Thank you so much. The idea of we're all human in this gig. I mean, this makes so much sense. All of a sudden, I could feel the corners of my mouth going up into a smile. I had a heck of a day caregiving stress today, which is all out of my control because I have to go through a facility that's locked down. So I just did a a complete flip Mm -hmm. as opposed to walking away, taking Mm -hmm. five, and then going back. In other words, diffuse, Mm -hmm. blow it off. This is almost like stop, do this. Mm. And that felt so much better. Mm. Also, to not have to wait till the end of the day. The idea that this really made a difference for me in the moment. Mm. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That's really helpful. Thank you so much, Val. What we know about the brain through neuroscience, and this is a radical departure from what we thought we knew. We used to think that the brain was fairly set by the time we reached a certain stage of development. But we now understand neuroplasticity of the brain, which means that the brain is still developing. And so when we practice mindful self-compassion, we are literally laying down new neural pathways. We are exercising muscles that are there, but they're little tiny muscles. And you know, when you go to work out, you don't pick up the biggest weight in the room. You really give yourself the grace 
of working into this. This is why I consider this a life practice. This isn't like a self-improvement kind of class, but this is really about what are tools that I can take with me from now to the grave that will help me be with life as it unfolds, not life as I wish it were, but life as it actually is, and to be able to offer ourselves compassion for that. I think that's just such an incredible gift we can give ourselves. So a couple more questions, Rita? Thank you. This is good. It's really timely. I'm in the midst of pretty intensive caregiving for my mother, who's 97, just came back from round the clock days of it today. I've been struggling with how do I get the support I need for myself? Because this could go on for a while. And I kept thinking about the people who I wanted to provide support towards me. I hadn't really thought about it vis-a-vis my mom. I've been in and out of the hospital with her lately, getting intensive news, and it's all been unexpectedly intense. I kept thinking, who do I call? Where do I get it from the outside? You know, my friends, relatives. And this is a good reminder that I can always come back and provide it towards myself as well. And that might take the edge off me feeling like, why aren't those people calling me? Why aren't they anticipating it, reading my mind, you know? And once in a while, one of them does. But I think there is a real thing about expecting someone or some group of people to be there for us when we're in especially hard times. Thank you so much for naming this. I think this is especially true of caregivers, something that might be of interest to this group. I participated in the aging that at a home with growing older did a few years ago. And as a result of that contact, I was asked to speak at the Memory Care Cafe, which is part of the Jewish Family Community Center. They wanted me to speak to their dementia caregiver group. And so I wasn't sure what I was going to be walking into because it's a drop-in. So they never know who's going to show up, what kind of day people would be having, how deep they were into their illness. And so I didn't think I could teach in the traditional kind of way. So I led them in an exercise where I asked them to go around the room and talk about where they discovered love. How did they find out what love was. Frequently spouses or partners or family members with the person who had some level of dementia typically talked about each other. These beautiful stories of the way they loved each other, the way they cared for each other. And, you know, there wasn't a dry eye in the room and people were just feeling all this love. And so I asked people to really notice how that felt in their bodies. Like, to really allow their heart to be warmed by these expressions of care. And then I said, now can you imagine what it would be like if you directed that care towards yourself? And the caregivers, they almost fell out of their chair. I mean, it was like, oh my God, I can do this for me? It's just a common thing with caregivers. We we put ourselves you know, way down on the list, and we keep waiting for someone to give us what we are offering. And so I think you're so right, Rita, this idea that we still need to be cared for by others, but that we can also care for ourselves is really powerful. David, do you have a final question? Well, I guess I I will offer myself as the lesson. So it is so easy to turn this mindful self-compassion into another way in which we just don't cut it. 
the idea that I can't even be self-compassionate, like how pathetic is that? There's a meditation teacher in Australia, Bob Sharples, who calls this the subtle aggression of self-improvement. And so I just think it is so important to engage in self-compassion with a lot of compassion. We are messy, messy human beings, and we can bring understanding to ourselves and know that we're doing our best and we're learning. You're curious about doing a deeper dive into this. The Center for Mindful Self-Compassion has a really great website, and there are teachers literally around the world teaching this. So lots of opportunities to learn. Thank you, everyone, for being here and for adding to this compassion. Thank you, David. It was a special time for all of us. Thank you for your generosity and opening this door. Again, I feel like for me, I've been a student with you, but I need this door opened over and over and over again, because I keep forgetting in the everyday pain to open the store. It was a real treat. Thank you so much. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.